Thank you for joining us today at Our Savior's Church, where we are one church meeting in seven different locations. We hope that today's message encourages and empowers you on your spiritual journey and helps you grow deeper in your relationship with God. To learn more about Our Savior's Church and how you can get involved, you can visit us online at OurSavior'sChurch.com. Well, we're continuing in our series called A Walk with Abraham, and that's exactly what we're doing. We're taking a walk with this great man, this great giant of the faith named Abraham. And as of right now, he's called Abram because his name has not yet been changed. And Abram means exalted father, and, but there's a problem with that. He doesn't have any kids yet. And so we're looking at this man Abram's life and Let me just say this. We've studied a lot of people in church and looked at a lot of great people. Of course, the greatest of all is Jesus Christ, our Lord. He's the very centerpiece of all of human history. But this man, Abram, or again, as he'll be called, Abraham, is a giant of a man. He's a giant of the faith. He's a giant in all of human history. He's influential in not only our faith, but in multiple faiths. And not only has a nation come from him, but he is a father of many nations. So the man that we're talking about deserves our attention because he is a very great man indeed. And the beautiful thing about taking this walk with him and his story is that we don't just get to see all of the highlight reels. We don't get to see all of the great things about him. We get to see his mistakes. We get to see his failures. We get to see when he trusted God, and we get to see when he doubted and had had fears, was overcome with, with doubt and questions. And I don't know about you, I mentioned this last week, but that's encouraging to someone like me who has to look in the mirror and think, man, I can't believe I did that. Man, I, I blew it. God, why did why why wasn't I trusting you in that area? I get to look at someone like Abraham and think, well, God, if you used him with all of his mistakes, you can still use me. Come on, is that encouraging for you today? I want to pick up in the story where we left off, though, because we left off last week in Genesis 13 with the story of Abram and his nephew, Lot. Now, his nephew, Lot, of course, his father, Haran, died, and Abram kind of assumed the responsibility for Lot, and Lot was with him through his travels and his journey, and they both along the journey became very wealthy. Some the absolute blessings of God, some Abram's mistakes that God still turned around for his good. But we see this, that God blessed them, and he became wealthy. Lot also became wealthy. And in Genesis chapter 13, we see these two men, there's a dispute that breaks out between their herdsmen because they have so many sheep, so many goats, so much livestock that there's not enough land for their livestock to stay together. And of course, Lot's herdsmen start saying things like, well, who does Abram's sheep think they are? They walk around here like their goats are better than our goats. Right? And so I guess that's how people fought back in ancient times. I don't know. But they're, they're criticizing, and we, see some, we, we get to see into Lot's heart because Lot doesn't put that argument down. If anything, Lot's probably perpetuating it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my uncle got me to this point, but I mean, 
I mean, come on. I don't owe him anything. Yeah, just his life, that's all. So we see this separation, and in Abram's life, this is one of those victorious moments for Abram where he walks in absolute humility. He walks in humility, he walks in honor, and he prefers his nephew. He he initiates the conversation, and he goes to Lot, and he says, listen, I don't want any fighting between us. I don't mind having this this tough conversation, but I don't want the fighting to continue. So whatever you want, whatever land you want, you can have. If you go to the, the right, I'll go to the left. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. And so he prefers him. And here's this man. Let me just, let me ask you this question. Who did God make the promise that he was going to give the land to? Again, not a trick question. It's on the screen right behind me. <laughs> Who did God promise that he would give the land to? Abraham. Abraham. Who was God blessing? Abraham. Abraham. But yet we see this man so secure in his God in this moment that he can prefer someone else. And that should say a mouthful for us. When are we fighting for ourselves the most? When we feel like we have to be the ones to fight for us. When are we the most insecure when we're not secure in what God says? So here's Abram, secure in the fact that God is going to give him what he needs. God's going to give him this land. And he says to his nephew, take whatever you want. Take whatever you want. I'll prefer you. I'll walk in honor, even though you were probably backstabbing me. Even though you were probably talk, speaking ill of me behind my back. Even though you're requiring something of me that you, you have no right to require. I'm still going to honor and prefer you. And that's exactly what he does. And he blesses him because he's secure in his God. So as he prefers Lot, Lot chooses this land that looks very good to him. He chooses what's beautiful to his eyes. And he chooses a land that's really close to the land of Sodom. Now, there's a lot that can be said about that. Lot chose what looked good to him instead of choosing what God wanted or what God said. His blessings were coming from walking with Abram. That's where his blessings came from. God, Lot was following Abram, but Abram was following the Lord. So when Lot stopped following Abram, guess who he stopped following? The Lord. His blessings, his source. Abram knew who his source was. So Lot chooses from what he sees, and he goes to this area near Sodom. Now, this is right at, and I didn't say this at the first verse, but it's right at the the base of the Jordan, where the Jordan meets the Dead Sea. It's a little disc-type shaped area that is just blossoming because they never need rain because there's a constant source from the Jordan River going into the, the Dead Sea that is just a plentiful, flourishing land. And, and Lot says, you know what? I want that. But here's the problem with that. When we choose what, only, what we can see with our eyes and we don't acknowledge God, what we don't see is what's to come. We don't see the problems on the other side of that decision. I've said it many times, quoting Miss Michelle Lorenzo, that you never know what's on the other side of your obedience, but like, uh, likewise, you also never know what's on the other side of your disobedience. Yeah. 
So Lot didn't know that. And this is where we're going to pick up the story. Genesis chapter 14, verse 1. He's now in the land, near the land of Sodom, if not in the land of Sodom. And some of you may say, Sodom sounds familiar. It should. And hopefully we're going to get to talk a lot about Sodom. But Sodom was a place that was not known for its righteousness. It was known for its unrighteousness. It was known for its perversion. And it was known for God's judgment on its unrighteousness and its perversion. God literally judged this place. But that hasn't happened yet. Genesis chapter 14, verse 1. About this time, what time? The time that Lot chooses the land. War broke out in the region. Now, I want to ask y'all's permission for something as I get started this morning. I want you to say this with me. Say, Pastor Gabe, you have my permission to give us a history lesson. Last service, by the time I got to that statement, not as many people were saying what I was saying. But I want to give you a little history, a little context, a little backstory, because the Bible does. The Bible gives us this context, this history, so that it can make a point. The same way I want to make a point to you of what the text is saying. So this is where we pick up the story. About this time, war broke out in the region. There's going to be a lot of weird names. Just bear with me. King Amraph, excuse me, King Amraphel of Babylonia, King Arioch of Elasar, King Kador Laomer, very important name. We're going to talk a lot about King, K, uh, excuse me, <laughs> Kador Laomer. We're going to talk a lot about him in this message because he's a very prominent figure in the story of Elam. King Tidal of Goim fought against King Bera of Sodom, King Bersha of Gomar, King Shinab of Adma, King Shamiber of Zeboim. Now, Zeboim sounds like something from Star Wars, but <laughs> Zeboim and the king of Bela, also called Zoar. Now, that's a lot of names and a lot of kingdoms, but this is what I want you to see. This is the first world war recorded in the Bible. This is the first global scale type of war in the Bible. These are five kings fighting against four kings. Multiple nations now coming to a place of battle, alliances being made so that this giant war can take place. That's what's happening. Why would they do that? Why was this war happening? The Bible's getting ready to tell us. Verse 3. The second group of kings, these, the five kingdoms that we talked about last, joined forces in Sedim, in the Sedim Valley, excuse me. That is the Valley of the Dead Sea. For 12 years, they had been subject to King Kedor Laomer, but in the 13th year, they rebelled against him. So these five kingdoms were subject to King Kedor Laomer. They were subject to Elam. In other words, Elam was like, we're the boss, we're calling the shots, y'all are paying us taxes. And they finally say, wait a minute, and this sounds familiar, no taxation without representation. So we, you're not going to do this to us, we're not paying you anymore. And they don't. And a problem ensues. And Cato Leomer gets his crew together, and they have, they're going to attack 
these five kingdoms, these four kings, Elam being a prominent kingdom against these five kingdoms. Verse 5, one year later, Kedorlaomer and his allies arrived and defeated the Raphaites of Ashtaroth, Carnaim, the Zuzites at Ham, the Emites at Shava, Kerithim, and the Horites at Mount Seir, as far as El Paran at the edge of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Meshpah, now Meshpat, excuse me, now called Kedash, and conquered all the territories of the Malachites and all the Amorites living in Hazazan Tamar. <sighs> no, 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 no. Just, I just needed a breath. What's happening here? King of Elam, Cator Leomer, he's turning, he's coming, and he's just attacking everybody in his way. And he's taking over territory after territory after territory on, on, on his way, excuse me, to attack the people who rebelled against him. So this guy is just collecting territory, collecting power. We see figures like this in the Bible especially in the Old Testament where these kingdoms go and they just take over kingdom after kingdom after kingdom after kingdom. And this is what he's doing. Now, what's interesting is that he's the king of Elam. And Elam today is modern-day Iran. Elam is the southern part of what we would consider today modern Iran. And let's keep going because it gets more interesting. Then the, then the rebel kings of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, and Bela, also called Zoar, prepared for battle in the valley of the Dead Sea. They fought against King Kedorlaomer of Elam, King Tidal and Goim, King Amraphel of Babylonia, remember that name, Babylonia, and King Arioch of Elasar, four kings against five. So again, five kings, four kings attacking one another. Now what's interesting is King Amraphel, he was the king of Babylonia. And if that sounds familiar, it should, because Babylonia and Babylon were the same kingdom. And Babylon is mentioned in the Old Testament, and it's mentioned all the way to the book of Revelation. Inter, interwoven all throughout the book of Revelation, excuse me, all throughout Scripture, you see this Babylon, this Babylonian principle, this Babylonian army, which today is modern-day Iraq. What's interesting is that these kingdoms were at war all the way in Genesis, and here we are all these thousands of years later, and these kingdoms are still at war trying to conquer the world. It's very interesting when you think about it. So this first global war that's getting ready to take place, this is what it says, verse 10. As it happened, the valley of the Dead Sea was filled with tar pits. And as the army of the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into the tar pits while the, other, while the rest escaped into the mountains. Now, why would the five kings escape? Because they lost the battle. They lost the king of Elam. And so they're retreating. Some of them are running away and they're dying in tar pits. Others are escaping to the mountains. Now, this is where the story makes a turn because it comes back to the key figure, Abram. 
Let's take a look at it. Let me ask this question. Where did Lot choose to live? Near Sodom. Who was attacked? Sodom. So we see Sodom and Gomorrah, they're attacked, and Lot is there. Lot makes a bad decision thinking that he's doing the right thing with his limited wisdom, and he chooses a land that, not knowing, unbeknownst to him, would soon be in a world war. What's the principle that we can take from that? God knows the end from the beginning. Sometimes we're busy trying to make decisions based on what looks good to us. This looks right to me. I want that. I want that. And if we would only acknowledge the Lord, he would tell us, that's not the right thing for you. But God, that looks good. I know how it looks. But listen to me, because a month from now, you're going to view this as a mistake. But God, I want that job. God, I want to date her. God, I want to start this business or I want to join with them in, in partnership for this business. And it looks really good to us. But what we don't know is that in the years to come and maybe even in the months to come, the thing that we thought was a blessing would actually be our captivity. It would be the thing that puts us in bondage. Why? Because we chose it. It's not like God threw us in there. There's some battles that God will lead you into. That will happen. It doesn't mean that we have a battle-free life, but there's some battles God leads us into and some battles God never intended for us to be in, but we chose it. Because we would not listen to the wisdom of others. We would not listen to the wisdom of God. I thank God for the moments when God has protected me from myself. I thank God for the moments when he's protected me, when I saw something that I wanted, that I thought was good. And he said no. Or he sent someone to say no. And I'm grateful to God for the people who love me enough to cross my will and say, that is not the right thing for you. Because in the moment, I'll just tell you, it's not what I wanted to hear. I wanted them to say, you are so wise. Surely the Lord is with you. He will give this to you and bless you. How about the, let me speak to my, my former Pentecostals and Charismatics in the room as well. Something that you should be very careful of is when you go to someone for quote-unquote wisdom and you tell them, God told me. Because when you tell me, God told me this, my question is, why are you asking me then? Because you're not really looking for wisdom, you're just telling me what you're going to do. Well, the Lord told me, this is, what you, this is what you do whenever you tell us that. My hands are now shackled, and you have to go find out for yourself if that was really God or not. And there have been moments in my life that I have thought something was the will of God, because we know how to manipulate, God told me this. So let me get this straight. You're married to your spouse. There's no infidelity. And God's telling you to leave? Let me just tell you, that is not the voice of God. That is not the voice of God. But I feel, listen, your feelings will lie to you. Your feelings will make you think, surely this is the will of God. God wants me to be happy. What you don't know is God will let you endure so that you ultimately have genuine peace and happiness, not just this manufactured happiness now. 
But we limit ourselves from hearing God's protection and God's blessings because we want it now, and I don't want anybody else to tell me otherwise. God's will for you is good, but God's will for you is not always your will for you. And some of us need to know that, God, I want to date her. What you don't know is dating her is going to lead to marrying her, which is going to lead to misery. Or him. Don't judge me, ladies. Or him. (laughs) It's a general principle, okay? Lot chose what Lot wanted. And what Lot wanted led him into captivity. Verse 11. The victorious invaders then plundered Sodom and Gomorrah and headed for home, taking with them all of the spoils of war and the food supplies. They also captured, the Bible's telling us, they also captured Lot, Abram's nephew, who lived in Sodom and carried off everything that he owned. It was the stuff that caused him to separate himself from the blessing the relationship he had with Abram. It was the stuff that caused the conflict. And now him and the stuff are in captivity. Him and the stuff are now in bondage because of the decision that he made. He walked away from the blessing in his life. Why do we do that? Why do we do that? Because of what we want. And my encouragement to you is to be humble enough to hear wisdom. Listen, if God has given you a great small group leader, God's given you a relationship with myself or one of the pastors in our church, listen to godly wisdom. The worst decisions that we make for in our lives are the decisions we make on our own. The decisions we make with me, myself, and I as the wise counsel. Those are the worst decisions. Because we can't hear truth. We can't hear wisdom. We just want what we want in those moments. That's when you make the biggest mistakes of your life. Humility, which Abraham, Abram just modeled. Humility says, I don't know it all. I need help. I need wisdom. I thank God again for conversations where I've gone to people and I said, I think this is what God wants. And they go, that's not God. (laughs) Okay, you're right. And I look back later on and I go, thank you, God, that I listened to them. Because if I didn't listen to them, I would be stuck with this. I'd be stuck with that. Please let that sing. This is not for the country. Listen, I'm not asking you to call me whenever you have to decide whether or not you're going to buy a shirt. I don't want that. I don't need a Pastor Gabe. Should I I buy khakis or, or dickies? I don't care. But what I am trying to do is to help guide you through the major decisions in your life that if you don't do them well, will lead you into bondage. Let's keep going. Shifting gears. I want you to see this. I want you to see, we saw Lot's heart. Now I want you to see Abram's heart. I want you to see his response. Verse 13. But one of Lot's men escaped and reported everything to Abram the Hebrew. This is the first mention of that word Hebrew who was living near the oak grove belonging to Mamre, the Amorite. Mamre and his relatives, Eshkol and Anar, were Abram's allies. When Abram heard that his nephew Lot had been captured, he mobilized the 318 trained men 
who had been born into his household. Then he pursued Kedorlaomer's army until he caught up with them at Dan. Abram finds out about what happened to his nephew Lot, and he, he now has allies. Abram now has friends in high places, and he also has the specialized group of 318 men. These 318 men were born in his camp, born in the people that Abram oversaw. They were servants or people that worked for him. And these men were trained. Now, these weren't, when this says they were trained, they weren't goat herders. Okay, these were bad men. These men knew how to take care of themselves. These were men, and I mentioned them last service. He was in the, in the baptismal earlier. These were men like Pastor Scott Branningham. And if many of you don't know Pastor Scott, he is a bad man. <laughs> he is an old school military instructor of martial arts. Like, this is a bad dude. And you look at him and, go, and he goes, hey, hey, good morning. And you're like, you don't know. This is a bad dude. I don't want to mess with him. I can remember having Dr. Darius Daniels come and he and I in, in my office in the back, and we're talking, and he brought, I think it was his cousin or nephew or something like that, brother-in-law, actually. It was his brother-in-law. And his brother-in-law was in the military, and Pastor Scott's just standing there, and he looked at Pastor Scott and went on about his business. When Pastor Scott left, he said, who was that guy? I said, this is Pastor Scott Brangham, one of the people on our team. He said, I can tell by the way he stands, that's a bad man. <laughs> you know you're bad. When the, the way you stand, people are like, all right. I know bad men, and he's one of them. That's what these 318, these men were trained for battle. These men were trained for war. And I'm going to come back to that in a moment because I want you to see Abram's character. Abram's character was this. He had every right to say, Lot made his bed, time for him to lie in it. Lot made his own decisions. He can let him do his thing. I'm not rescuing him. I didn't choose it. I obeyed God. I even preferred that sucker. He didn't do that. When he heard that Lot was in trouble, he mobilized his army to go and rescue Lot. Even though Lot was the one who criticized him with his herdsmen, or at least allowed them to criticize him. Even though Lot chose the, lot, the, the land that was preferable that he probably should have given to Abram, even though he had done everything, he raised a lot of, isn't it, isn't it funny how sometimes we can forget what all people had, have done for us to get us to the place that we're at? He forgot all, Abram took him in when he had no father. He's wealthy because of Abram. And he takes him in and then he turns on him. And, and Abram had every reason to go, nope. But that's not the heart of a father. The heart of the Father says, I don't care what you've done. I don't care what kind of trouble you're in. I want to help you. I want to help you get out of this mess. Now, a good father, listen to me, dads. A good father knows when to rescue. Because sometimes you need to let them feel the weight of their consequences so that they learn the lesson so that you can actually rescue them. Sometimes they have to learn the lesson so that they never go back to the problem. But when they're in the problem and they can't find a way out, the heart of a father is, let me get you out of this mess. This is a picture of the prodigal son in the New Testament. The father didn't go out and get him. But when he was ready to come home, the father was waiting with arms wide open. Ready to restore to him everything that he lost at his own expense. 
That's the heart we see in Abram, the heart of a true father to rescue, to take care of, to help. Now, this is what the text says, verse 15. There he divided his men and attacked during the night. Cator Laomer's army fled, but Abram's Excuse me, but Abram chased them as far as Hobah near Damascus. Get this picture, because this is not the last time this is going to happen. Four kingdoms defeat five kingdoms, and they're taking over nations. And God, through Abram, sends 318 men, and they defeat that army. This is not the first time. Excuse me, this is not the last time that we're going to see this in the Bible, where God steps in and he uses an outnumbered Israel to defeat his great army. The army is attacking it. What's the point? What can we learn from that? I'll tell you what you can learn. If God is for you, he is more than the whole world against you. That's what you can learn from that. Doesn't matter what the what the insurmountable obstacles look like. It doesn't matter what, what the financial pressures of the world looks like. Listen, I heard a preacher say it like this, and I'm gonna break it down. He said, the kingdom of God is not subjugated to the vicissitudes of the economy. What does that mean? It means that it doesn't matter what the kingdom of the economies of the world is doing, God can provide for you in the middle of a famine. God can take care of you. God can protect you. God can preserve you. Why? Because he's God. Listen to me. You plus God is always the majority. It's always the victory. And that has very little to do with you. And a whole lot more to do with who he is. He does not lose. And because he doesn't lose, I'm sticking with the winner. I'm sticking with the one who has the victory. Even when I don't understand it, I'm following him. Even when it doesn't make sense, I'm following him. Because he does not lose. So God, through Abram, sends 318 men to rescue Lot against probably one of the greatest world superpowers at the time. 318 men. You serve a trustworthy God, church. You serve a trustworthy God. And I don't care what it looks like. He is your source. Remember that statement. He's your source. You need wisdom, he's your source. You need provision, he's your source. You need protection, he's your source. I also want you to see something about Abram. I'm not going to harp on this point too much, but Abram was not a pacifist. Abram didn't sit back and go, man, I'm going to pray for a lot. Abram gathered the 318 men that he trained for just such a moment to go and to rescue him. Why do you say that, Pastor? As Christians, we don't fight for ourselves. We don't. We allow the Lord to fight our battles. We don't fight for our reputation. We don't fight for ourselves. Jesus taught us to turn the other cheek, and we should. Something like, that's hard, is almost impossible. But with him, it's possible. But though we don't fight to protect ourselves, we very much fight to protect others. Abram fought to protect Lot. He had 318 men trained, and they protected Lot. And I made this statement earlier, and I'm not going to go too far into this. I love my wife, and I love my daughters, and I'm called to protect them. If something happens, somebody breaks into my house, there is a shotgun waiting for them. 
because I'm called to protect those women in my house. So we're not pacifists, but we don't fight for ourselves. You don't fight to protect your reputation, but when somebody's reputation that you know of is being slandered, you, ve- you better speak up. You better speak truth. Something unfair is happening. We are called to be salt and light. And if you disagree with me, just talk to Pastor Paul. He'll set you straight. (laughs) Verse 16. Abram recovered all the goods that had been taken, and he brought back his nephew Lot with his possessions and all the women and other captives. So once again, we see Abram saving Lot. And it's not going to be the last time that we see Abram saving Lot. And hopefully we'll get to that story again. But here's what I want you to see in that. Abram was a blessing to Lot even when Lot was disobedient. You are a blessing to your family even when they're disobedient. Even when they don't acknowledge it. Even when they don't appreciate it. You're still called to be a blessing to them. How so? When they're running off and they're in the streets and they're in the club or they're making bad decisions or they're sleeping around or they're doing, your prayers matter. Your prayers for them matter. When they're making horrible choices and they wonder why they don't get caught or they wonder why they just seem to be protected, it's because of your prayers. But here's my question. Are you praying? Are you interceding? Are you standing in the gap? for those who need that from you. Sometimes your prayers need to be God, let them hit rock bottom so that they'll see. Other times your prayers need to be God, preserve and protect them. I know they're making these bad decisions and I pray they learn, but God, please don't let them make a decision that devastates the course of the rest of their life. Interceding, praying, standing in the gap. Are y'all with me, church? This is what we're called to. Parents, as I said before, you never know what's on the other side of your obedience, right? But you never know what's on the other side of your disobedience. Your obedience or your obedience to God or disobedience towards God affects your children. And it affects your grandchildren. All the more reason to look to God to be your source. To look to God who knows the end from the beginning. That's why we do that. That's why we look to him. And we stand in the gap. Listen, I have fought battles that my children will never have to fight. They will have their own. They will have their own issues. They will have their own struggles. And isn't it ironic how a lot of times it's the birth of a child that gets us to the place where we start thinking, I probably need to start going back to church. What are we saying? I don't want my kids to live like I'm living. So let me start changing and adjusting. That's a good thing. But do it, model it, live it for them. When we were interviewing Pastor Paul and Miss Lynn up here, which was an incredible, incredible time. Did y'all appreciate that? That time with Pastor Paul and Miss Lynn on parenting. Miss Lynn, you said something that I thought was so deep and profound, and it was so simple at the same time. I asked you, I said, what's the one thing, the most important thing that you would tell a parent raising kids? And you said this. Be a Christian. Live like a Christian consistently. Not perfect, but live like a Christian consistently. What was she saying? She was saying this. Model for them 
how to live. If you're living for God, you're modeling, you're modeling for them how to live for God. That's the greatest thing you can do for your kids. You may not have a million dollars to leave them as an inheritance, but you can leave them an inheritance of righteousness. You can leave for them an example to follow. I got off on that. Let's keep going. So Lot's rescued. I'm sure very appreciative to Abram, or at least I hope very appreciative to Abram. But then we see something odd happen in the Bible. And it's not odd in a bad way. It's odd in that it's very unique. A very unique thing happens. And a person is brought forward that will be talked about in the New Testament as well in the book of Hebrews. And he just randomly shows up just randomly pops into this story when he was not a part of it before, when all of these kings were being mentioned, all of these people groups were being mentioned, this random person pops in. And I want to explain that to you. Verse 17, after Abram returned from his victory over Cato Leomer and all his allies, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, and a priest of God Most High brought Abram some bread and wine. Melchizedek blessed Abram with this blessing. Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has defeated your enemies for, excuse me, your enemies for you. Then Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all the goods he had recovered. Now, the king of Sodom who Abram, not only did he rescue Lot, he rescued Sodom's stuff. He rescued Sodom's people. These 318 men defeat this thing and take all of the plunder with them. So they're, they're coming back, and so the king of Sodom wants to meet Abram. But before he does, another king pops in, and his name is Melchizedek. He's the king of Salem. And instead of him asking Abram for anything, he actually gives Abram something. He blesses Abram. Now, I want, I want to make it clear again. He was not mentioned before this. He came out of nowhere. Nobody was talking about Salem. Nobody was talking about Melchizedek. But now he's here. And the Bible tells us that he was a king and a priest. I'm going somewhere with this. I'm not, this is not history lesson stuff. I'm going somewhere with this. He was both a king and a priest. In the Old Testament, that was not common. You were a king or you were a priest. And he shows up and he's both. As a matter of fact, we see King Saul in the Bible. Many of you remember the story where he's a king and he tries to do the job of a prophet or a priest and God judges him for it. So you didn't have king priests together, yet you see this guy Melchizedek who's a king and he's a priest, which is uncommon. And in that day, those kings and Abram as well, a few chapters before this, they were polytheists, meaning they worshiped many gods. And here's this Melchizedek who worships the one true living God. Wait a minute. The way it seems, it seems as if Abram was the only, like, really godly one that God revealed himself to. So who is this guy? And how does he know about the king? Is, is he a Jew? He's not a Jew. See, Israelite is not an Israelite. Why? Because there was no such thing yet. Abram hadn't had his first child. 
the Jews and the Israelites came from Abram's line. So that's not it. But yet he shows up serving the one true living God. Not all the rest of these gods like everybody else. So that sets him apart. That makes him different. He was a king, he was a priest, and he worshiped God. And this is what the book of Hebrews says about this man, Melchizedek. Thousands of years, many thousands of years later. Says this in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 17. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, why would it say that? One, it's talking about Jesus. It says, Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. What's an order, Pastor Gay? Again, so glad you asked. What's an order? An order was the line of people or the group of people that were called to be priests. In, in Judaism, in the Jewish religion, the only people who were allowed to be priests were the descendants of Aaron, the Levites. That's what you can see this all throughout the Old Testament. Levite priests, Levite priests, Levite priests. Well, Jesus shows up and the Bible calls him our high priest, but he wasn't a Levite. He was from the kingly line, the line of Judah, yet the Bible calls him the high priest and the king. And it says the reason why he can do this is he was from the order of Melchizedek, which means his order was greater than the order of the Levites. His order came long before the Levites even came on the scene. Melchizedek worshiped the one true living God long before, long before there even was a Jewish people. Now, Pastor, why are you telling me all of that? Here's the point. That psalm, that scripture that they quote in Hebrew is actually from Psalm 110, where the Bible says, the Lord said to my Lord, which is a picture for us of God talking to Jesus, right? So this whole thing was about the Messiah this whole time. And he's a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Some people think that Melchizedek either came from the line of Shem, which we talked about in the, the first message of this series, Shem, the, one of the sons of Noah and how they populated the earth. And you can trace the Russians, you can trace the Persians, you, all back to these people, these sons of Noah, literally by name, you can trace them back to that. Some people think he was from the line of Shem. Some people think he was Shem himself. Other people think he was just a king who just had this revelation of the one true God, kind of like Abram did. But others believe, and this is what I believe, that he was an Old Testament, was called a Christophany or an early appearing of Jesus that Jesus came on the scene and interacted with Abram. Jesus from the, is in the order of Melchizedek. I personally believe because Melchizedek was an early picture of Jesus in the Old Testament. We see this all throughout the Bible. I believe in the, when the three Hebrew boys were in the fire, that fourth person that looked like the Son of Man was an early appearing of Jesus. So, again, what's the proof of that? Look at what he gave him. Bread and wine. What's our communion? Bread and wine. That name, Melchizedek, broken down, Melech and uh, Zedek, Melchizedek means king, Melech, righteousness. Zedek, he's the king of righteousness. 
And he's from Salem. He's the king of Salem, which would in the future be called Jerusalem, which means peace. So he's the king of righteousness, and he's the king of peace. So this king of righteousness and this king of peace appears to this man, Abram, and he blesses him with bread and with wine. And this is how he responds. This is what he does. This is how Abram responds to this king of righteousness, this king of peace. He gives him a tenth of everything that he just conquered. Everything he just conquered, he gives this priest, this high priest, a tenth of it. That's called a tithe. And that's the first place in the Bible that we even see that principle mention of a tithe, giving the first 10%. We do that here as a church, and I've been doing that since I was 16 or 17 years old. And tithing is a, it's a sign of submission, and it's a sign of worship. It's a sign of God, not only are you the God of my life and my emotions and my feelings, but you're the God of my finances, and I'm putting you first even in that. Now, listen, this is not a tithe message. I want you to see something. He tithes to this king of peace. He tithes to this king of righteousness. And I'm, man, I don't want to jump ahead of myself, but I'm going to get there in a moment. He, he does this. Something that I've been doing since I was a kid, and it's my way of going. God, I put you first. There's a story I heard of a man who became, he'd become very wealthy. He'd gotten really, really blessed. And he, he was a tither, and he talked to his pastor, and he said, Pastor, I'm just going to tell you, it's been a lot more difficult to write a 10% check. There's a lot more zeros behind this check than it was when I first started. And the pastor says, well, man, can I pray with you? I says, please. So he prays with the man and he says, God, I pray you reduce this man's salary back down to the place <laughs> where he's willing to obey you. And God's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. The point is the submission and the honor and the worship. God, you're first. You're first. And Abram does this, but I want you to see who he's doing that to. Now, this chapter began with what? It began with five kings who decided they no longer wanted to pay tribute to their king. And it ends with a man of God freely giving 10% and tribute to his king. You see how this goes full circle? What's the point? God is your source. He's your source. He's who we give our allegiance to. He's who we give our worship to. He's who we give our affections to, our goals, our dreams, our ambitions, our decisions. He is all of those things. We give those things to him. Why? Because we trust that he's going to provide everything that we need. He is your source. And then, as I end, Abram confirms what I just said with this. Verse 21. The king of Sodom, so him and Melchizedek part ways. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give back my people who were captured, but you may keep for yourself all the goods that you've recovered. Abram replied to the king of Sodom, I solemnly swear to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will not take so much as a single thread or sandal thong from which belong, what belongs to you. Otherwise, you might say that I am the one who made Abram rich. 
I will accept only what my young warriors have already eaten, and I request that you give a fair share of the goods to my allies, Anar, Eshkol, and Mamre. What was he saying? He was saying to those, saying to, to that king, king of Sodom, you are not, never have you been, and never will you be my source. My source is the Lord. I ask you, who's your source? When you're afraid, who gives you courage? When you're nervous, who's your peace? When there's a financial lack in your life, who's your provider? When you're scared something's going to happen to you, who's your protector? Look to the Lord. He is your source. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for the word of God, for the pictures and the stories and the lessons and the things that you can teach us through your word. And I thank you that you are, always have been, and always will be a trustworthy source. And God, we yield to you. Maybe you're here this morning. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand to be acknowledged. But if you're here and you say, Pastor, I've really wrestled with that one. I've wrestled with God being my source. For any of the things that I mentioned or something that only you know, I want you to reaffirm and recommit to the Lord today that, God, you are my source. I'm sorry I've looked to other places. I'm sorry I've looked to other things. Right there where you're at, just tell them, Lord, I repent. I'm sorry that I've looked to people to be my source. I'm sorry that I've looked, God, to my own intelligence or my own willpower and driver. God, you're my source and I trust you. I repent for making my own decisions my own way and not acknowledging you. Your word says, Lord, acknowledge the Lord in all your ways and he will direct your path. Thank you for directing the path of your people. And if any of them lack wisdom, you said you give it liberally and abundantly. With every eye closed and every head bowed, maybe you're here today and the language of kings and kingdoms and Melchizedek being a king, maybe that's foreign to you. And maybe you've never made the decision to make Jesus the king of your life. And Christianity is not a religion, quote unquote. It's a kingdom. It's a kingdom with one king. And Jesus Christ is that king. And we yield our ways to him when we are born again. Pastor, what is that? Born again is just like it sounds. The old you dies and the new you is resurrected from the dead. Forgiven of your sins, your guilt, your shame, gone, wiped away, washed clean. And he wants to do that for you today. Pastor, how do I do that? It's as simple as ABC. A, you admit. Admit that you're a sinner that there's sin and there's things in your life that have separated you from a holy, righteous God and you just get honest with it because he already knows. But then B, you believe. Believe what? 
that he sent Jesus to die for that sin. So you don't have to carry it around. You don't have to live with the guilt and the shame that you carry. He died for it to set you free from it, to take it away because he loves you. Just like Lot, you went and did your own thing and he came looking for you and he rescued you. And then see, you confess what? Allegiance to him. That you are my Lord. That I want to be a part of your kingdom. And I yield my life to you. And from this moment on, I will follow you. And if that's you with nobody looking around, on the count of three, I just want to acknowledge who I'm going to pray with. I want you to lift up your hand. And then I'm going to have you put it down. And then all of us are going to pray this prayer. But I want to know who's making that decision today. If that's you, on the count of three, lift up your hand. One, two, three. If that's you, lift it up. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? Thank you, ma'am. Thank you. See your hand back there. Praise God. Keep it up high. Don't be embarrassed. Lift it up high. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Praise God. If you have your hands lifted, nobody else looking around, I want you to just look at me for a moment. This is the beginning of the best journey of your life. I had you lift up your eyes because I want you to always remember this moment. You can put your head down. Church, let's pray this prayer out loud together. Say, Dear Lord Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God. I believe on the cross you died for my sin, my guilt, the things that I'm ashamed of. I believe you faced hell so that I wouldn't have to. And that you rose again from the dead to give me a place in heaven, a purpose on earth, and a relationship with God the Father. So I repent of my sin. I turn away from it. And my allegiance is now to you. God, you are my Father. Jesus, you're my Lord and Savior. Holy Spirit, you're my helper. And heaven is now my home. In Jesus' name, I'm yours. Amen. Come on, church, let's celebrate. Another person that prayed that prayer. If you will, stand to your feet. I want to pray for you and release you. But before I do, if you prayed that and you're wondering, what do I do now? What do I do next? Number one, keep coming. Jesus calls us to follow him, not just as individuals, but together as a family, together as a people. So keep coming and learn, learn what that means to be a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus. Also, we're going to have prayer partners up here. And if you need prayer, come and find one of our prayer partners. You pray that prayer, say, I just pray for me, help me as I begin this journey. Or whatever you have going on in your life, let us pray with you. And if you pray that to make that decision, you can fill out a card. And that's another way of telling someone about the decision that you made. Let someone know, I'm following Jesus. Lord, let me pray for you. Lord, I thank you for your people. God, I pray that you bless them. I pray that you would make your face to shine on them. And you would bless them and they're going out and then they're coming in. And that as they seek first you and your kingdom, you would bless everything that they put their hands to. And Lord, as a church, I pray that we would be a pure church who walks in the fear of the Lord, that we'd be a powerful church filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, and we would be a persistent church even in the face of challenges. And all God's people said, in Jesus' name, amen.